AI tools are never going to be 100% accurate. You need to build effectively a process around these models, knowing that they're not going to be right 100% of the time. That's the first, I think, biggest misconception that people have. It's like, you just assume that AI is going to be a drop-in replacement for whatever software you're currently using. It's not a rule-based system. These are statistical systems. They exploit correlations. They're correct on average. Welcome to AI Experience, the podcast that demystifies artificial intelligence. My name is Julian Rodelsberger, and we are going to find out how AI is changing the world. And I'm super happy today to welcome Sanjay Krishnan, who is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago and MLAI lead for a startup called Ecomark. So we'll have a lot to talk about. Thank you for joining me, Sanjay. Sanjay, how are you today? Good, good. Thank you for having me, Julian. Uh, I always love doing these types of things. Yeah, thanks. That's uh, that's a pleasure. So, Sanjay, your journey in AI is quite remarkable with applications like robotics, surgery, digital archaeology. It's like the Indian agents of the future. So, could you just uh, tell me, please, a little bit about who we are, what you do, and why are you so passionate about artificial intelligence? A absolutely. So... Uh... I'm um, I'm currently a professor at the University of Chicago, as well as I work at the startup EchoMark. And uh, my journey in AI is actually a journey in sensing. I've uh, I've been a sensor person all my life, and uh, my uh, my my research group studies how do we make sense of measurements of the real world? How do we take complicated systems and uh, really understand what they're doing just from taking digital me measurements of these systems. And uh, that sort of has led me into various parts about AI because fundamentally AI is building models of the world based on data, building predictive models of the world based on data to be a little bit more precise. And that's what, that's what really modern AI is all about. And I think that that's how I've ended up in this space. Uh, I've been a big data sensor person all my life. And I think the, the newest iteration of this work is really at the forefront of how do we predict the behavior of very complicated systems. Okay, so today everyone seems to talk about AI, uh, but I'm sure that's uh, only if you really know really how it works. So could you just please tell us what is AI, let's say for a 10 year old kid and for a decision maker in a company? <laughs> good, good, good. This is this is actually a, it's actually a hard, it's a hard thing to define AI, right? It's like, uh, where's the line between AI and just regular software, right? Uh, traditionally, when we used to take an, let's just say an undergrad artificial intelligence class, they would say that AI is any software that does a task commonly associated with human intelligence. So for example, understanding what is inside a camera image, uh, understanding what is inside uh, a piece of text, uh, audio recognition. So these are tasks, these are perceptual tasks commonly associated with human intelligence. So that is the working definition of AI. Now, uh, that's kind of a broad topic. Uh, a particular sort of slice of AI has been, um, has been really popular over the last maybe two decades, which is called machine learning. And machine learning is essentially, essentially how do computers recognize patterns in very large data sets and mimic those patterns? And, uh, and I think that these two pieces have been kind of conflated together, right? We talk about AI and machine learning in like usually the same breath, but uh, really machine learning is a class of algorithms that has really started to work because of the scale of the internet and data that we have. So for a 10 year old kid, the, the way to think about AI is computers are getting better at perceptual tasks, uh, like looking at, visual data and understanding what is in the world. 
reading a, reading an essay and understanding what the essay is about, uh, hearing people and responding to people. That's what uh, that's what computers have gotten better at. For a uh, for a decision maker at a at a Fortune 500 company, uh, the way that you should really think about it is AI is matured. Uh, there was a time when uh, these these tools were just novelties sitting in research labs like mine, and uh, they didn't really work, right? They were uh, they were kind of prototypes and toys. Uh, what we've really seen over the last so many years is that these tools are actually not only working, they're bringing tremendous business value. And, uh, and it behooves you to understand where that value is coming from and how they're being used. Okay, that's interesting. Thank you so much for that. And so you know, of course, that AI... It has like it's it's not new. Like it's been here for years, for decades even. And one of the questions I like to ask all my guests is to know if they are surprised that we talk so much about AI these days. So I know the launch of ChatGPT had a lot to do with the democratization of AI, but what do you think? Is it like the next big thing? Is it the next big technological revolution? Or is it just the linear progression of how the technology is evolving? Great. So uh, there are a few different there are a few different points there I'd like to address. The first, uh, let, let's talk about the hype around ChatGPT. Uh, I I am an AI optimist. I actually I think there are a lot of academics who would be like, well, there's nothing new about ChatGPT. We were doing stuff like this before. I actually think it took everybody in academia completely by surprise. Um, because if you asked me, I've been in this field for what 12, 15 years now, and if you had asked me five years ago in 2019. Uh, when when the the earliest models similar to ChatGPT were being tried out, these, these transformer neural networks, would this be possible? I would have said absolutely not. I would have been maybe not even in the next 10 years. So the fact that ChatGPT came out in the way that it did and it works as well as it does is, I think, very, very surprising to a lot of academics, right? I think that we had, a lot of us had believed that the techniques that we were using in the 2010s were going to hit a ceiling, and they absolutely did not. Right. That's kind of the first thing. So I think the hype is 100 percent warranted. Right. I think that one of the reasons that you're seeing a hype is not only are these things like ChatGPT democratizing it, that everybody can understand and play around with an AI tool. I think it's also taking academic researchers and industrial applied scientists by surprise that it's working as well as it is. So I think that you have the confluence of those factors. I think that really the hype is warranted. The fact that we should we should really talk about why these things are working. That's kind of the first the first point here. The second point about the linear progression. Historically, that has actually not happened with AI. AI does not really AI technology has not progressed linearly. It has more pro progressed in little sprints and then jogs. Like it uh, it rapidly advances when we find out something new, and then it kind of pauses for a little bit and then rapidly advances again. And we've seen this from the 1970s, right? Like the advent of better chips led to more advanced control algorithms, and then suddenly people realize that. Just thinking about the world as control algorithms wasn't the way to go. And then again, we saw the advance with statistical machine learning, right? That people thought, well, we have all the data on the internet. We can start doing a little bit better. And then we suddenly hit a ceiling of techniques. Then we started leveraging graphics processor units to train these uh, more uh, more complex models. And again, we are seeing now a, a sprint where I think that technology will rapidly progress in the next few years until we hit a ceiling. And I think the real question is, where is that ceiling? And I don't think anybody really has a good answer to that. So you, you won't be able to do some prediction for the future, like where is AI going to be in a year, in two years, in five years? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that it's hard to predict that into the future, but I think it's better to talk about what we already know about the scaling effects of this, right? So why is 
generative AI as good as it is, right? I think that's the first question here, right? I think that really we're seeing that if we make bigger models and have bigger data, like we've, we're seeing more emergent and intelligent behavior out of the software, right? That's that's the uh, that's the first thing that is indisputable. I think that scaling has its own limits, right? I think that there is a limit to the amount of memory we can put on a graphics processor unit. And there's a limit, just dollars and cents, right? Like there's a limit to how how much money we can spend training these models, right? Um, they're like OpenAI reported that for GPT-3, the model behind ChatGPT, their operational cost was like 4.6 million or something like that, right? Uh, if they train something 10 times bigger, are they willing to spend 40.6 million on this 46 million on this right there's a there's an interesting um, there's an interesting question right are you getting that much business value out of it so i think that uh, a lot of the questions about the future of ai are not just ai questions they're not pure technology questions they're actually market questions right is there a market for like if you made a model 10 times bigger it's not necessarily going to be 10 times more intelligent. Uh, so are you willing to spend 10 times those costs, right? And I think that those are those are the hard questions. And I think those are good questions because in part, they show that AI is working. It's a real product now, right? It's a product that people can associate a business value with its outputs, right? And I think that that's, uh, that to me is the most promising thing. And I think that the hard part for me projecting in the future is I have no idea on the economics of this. I think that we are clearly seeing benefits to scaling, but I just fully know there's a dollars and cents reason why we can't Infinitely scale. So you're a professor at the University of Chicago. OpenAI, Google, Microsoft, they're all American companies. Uh, myself, I'm from France, but I live in Canada. And I also do have a podcast in, in French for my European uh, uh, listener. One of the questions I'm always wondering is like, why are you guys so good at AI? Why did you launch ChatGPT first? Where are the Europeans? And why do the Americans actually nailing at, at, at artificial intelligence? This is this is actually a very hard question because I think that talking to a kid, uh, talking to somebody in Canada, uh, like Canada has also been on the forefront of AI, right? I mean, that uh, two years ago, the Turing Award winners were from Canada in, in part because of their contributions to AI. I think that there's a confluence of factors here in the United States that have allowed for this AI boom. I think that I think that we first have a world-class research university system that does a lot of AI research. But I think that the really important part that I have learned about AI is that you have to collaborate with industry uh, because like there is um, the industrial collaborations that our universities are able to do uh, to advance AI research, I think is access a force multiplier to these uh, to, to AI research because look, AI is fundamentally based on data. You need a lot of money, a lot of users. You need a lot of uh, technology to collect that data in the first place, right? And industry is who has interesting data, right? If we just talk to academia, the types of data sets you'd be working with are scientific data sets or benchmarks or, or like they are interesting, but they are not solving real product problems out in the world, right? And I think that one thing that ChatGPT has done really, really, really well is it illustrates how you can take technology that has been developed in labs and really productize it in a way that captures human imagination on what it can do, right? Uh, and I, I think that, look, there's no way that academia on its own would have cap collected a data set as big as OpenAI did, right? And I think that one of the reasons why the AI industry is so vibrant in the United States is this academic industrial partnership in many different areas, right? Behind pretty much every a major AI effort, there is university research 
effectively backing it, right? Whether it is uh, academics working part-time in these uh, companies, whether it is uh, sponsored research agreements, whether it is uh, whether it is data sharing, right? I think that that has been, I think, what has allowed the United States to really capture the mantle of AI, right? It's like, I think that we've all realized that AI is about data. And I think that academics like me have realized that you know, universities just don't have the data to make to do interesting stuff. So we have to work with industry. So that's a perfect transition because you, as a professor, you also decided to join a startup. Uh, so you, you decided to join Ecomark. So why and what do you do there? Could you just tell us a, l- a little bit more about it? A- absolutely. So, uh, so I, I, you know, it's uh, it's a perfect segue. So let me tell you a little bit about my. Uh, my sort of transition over the last uh, the last few years, right? So um, I, I used to really focus maybe pre-pandemic on a lot of theoretical research. We used to focus on a lot of the mathematics of, of these problems and the statistics of these problems, kind of the mathematical foundations of AI problems, if you will, right? And, uh, you know, one thing led to another and I got an itch for working on things that were more applied. And uh, an old collaborator of mine, uh, David Wong, who is the head of platform at Echomark, right? We, we did a startup way back when. So when I was 23, we, uh, we worked in a startup together. And uh, he basically reached out to me saying that we have this idea. And, uh, you know, this is actually not unlike an idea that my research group had been throwing around a little bit, like uh, thinking about how can AI be used for cybersecurity? How can it be used for data privacy? And uh, one thing led to another and we started talking and uh, I realized, I think that just we, we played around with some initial data and I realized just how hard and how challenging the problem was. And it kind of scratched a practical itch, right? Like I was really thinking that I'd been doing this research for 10, 12 years and how could we really make a product impact using some of the things that we've learned. And this, this, and what Echomark works on is uh, identifying the sources of data leaks by invisibly watermarking data, right? And uh, really, it's kind of like a very complicated detection problem, right? You have, um, you have a bunch of different documents. Each of them have been watermarked slightly differently. And you want to identify what the source of the watermark actually is. And, uh, you know, this, this seems easy when these documents are very different from each other, right? If it's a, if it's a picture of a banana and a picture of a, like a palm tree, that's, that's a straightforward problem. What happens if they're exactly the same document and the watermark is simply just a perturbation of spacing in that document? How do we figure out that this document is Johnny's and this document is Sally's, right? And um, it turned out to really push the limits of how we could have precision AI tools, right? Because AI so far has been used in kind of not mission critical applications, right? That it's being used for generating text, but you know, the guidance is always, you should always review the text that ChatGPT generates, or it's used for fraud detection, but we all know how many times we've gotten a false fraud detection on our credit cards, right? And how do we do this in a mission critical application? And I think that that was really the interesting challenge to me because it exercises a lot of different parts of AI that we typically don't talk about, right? It exercises, uh, how do we build these models in the first place? How do we evaluate them, right? How do we build trust in the, this model works. And finally, how do we uh, how do we keep how do we sort of keep a one step ahead of people who are trying to break the model, right? I think that there's an interesting dynamics problem when you're working in cybersecurity that uh, is a cat and mouse game where when you build something that that catches somebody, people are going to try to evade it, right? And I think it's all of those dynamics that I think got me really, really interested in the stuff that Echomark is doing. Okay. So just to recap, Echomark, so you use a special algorithm AI method to avoid 
information leaks or at least to identify information leaks when they are happening? It's, it's actually all of the above, right? So Echomark's vision for the world is that you will never see an unwatermarked piece of data, that any data that is being shared between two parties is going to be personalized just for you. And it's going to be personalized in a way that we can, we can if it was ever leaked, and it was not only it leaked in its original format, a proxy of it was ever leaked, like it was cut and pasted or a screenshot or a camera phone image, we would be able to figure out which version was leaked, right? Now, that doesn't necessarily tell us who leaked it, right? It could have been someone over your shoulder taking a picture with the camera, but it does give people a little bit of visibility into how data is moving around in these organizations, right? And uh, I, I think that that's, that's what I take away from this, right? That uh, some of these tools are out there uh, some of the, the most interesting AI applications are out there, not for catching people, not for catching fraud, but just giving people additional visibility into what's going on. And it sort of goes back to my whole background in sensing, right? That it's like, I, I see this as like a AI-based sensing tool for documents moving around in companies, right? Because that's some of the most, in, most important information streams in a company are not your customer data moving into your database, but it's actually the internal employees talking to each other, right? It's like the brainstorming sessions and all the messaging, right? And if you can get, if you as a uh, chief information officer or chief information security officer, get some visibility into how data is moving around, how data is maybe egressing your system, you start understanding a little bit more about uh, about the dynamics of your own company. Okay, okay. And um, so which industry are you targeting? Is it like only the tech industry? Could be what's different or? So... Good, I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's all of the above. I think, that, uh, I think that right now we have built some really, really awesome technology. And, uh, and uh, I, I would encourage everyone to go to echomark.com and actually play around with the software and see, see what it does for yourself, right? Uh, you, you, can down, you can upload a PDF, watermark it, take a picture of it and see, uh, did it catch the right, uh, catch the right leaker, right? So I, I think that we actually are really searching for what those flagship customers are going to look like. And I think we're looking at verticals such as financials. We're looking at, uh, I think that financials are really interested, financial companies are really, really interested in the software for uh, for obvious reasons, right? They they share they share uh, account information and different types of disclosures and different types of evaluations all the time. Uh, we're really interested in working with uh, banks. We're really interested in working with people with legal interests as well. So there's there are a lot of different verticals that we could be uh, we could be looking at. Uh, right now, uh, like my focus has been developing the technology, but it'll be really interesting to see. Uh, how our customers uh, are going to drive where the technology goes. And I think that in part, it's going to be a big learning experience, right? I think that that first couple of flagship customers are going to be an amazing learning experience on, for me, how do we build an AI that actually works for customers, right? It's worked in internal testing, it's worked in simulation. Uh, is it actually going to work when a customer deploys it, right? This is, this is a question we would never have in academia, right? That it's like uh, once, once it passes inter internal simulation, that's your research paper, right? And I think, that, uh, I think that some of this is going to be really interesting in seeing how this technology interacts with the real world. And so how do you enjoy working for a startup? I, I, I really enjoy it. I, I think in part because you learn so much very, very quickly, right? Uh, and again, I think that some of some of my reason for working with a startup is actually a meta meta reason right that it's like look i have spent a lot of time researching ai right and it's like the algorithms that i've used were kind of right in my playbook but i think that some of the 
broader aspects of artificial intelligence, you can only learn from doing it and doing it in a position where you have control over, over the direction of the organization, right? And uh, like, for example, I think that a lot of people, when we think about AI and we think about bad behavior in AI and we think about bias and fairness and AI causing bad things, we usually zero in on a math problem, right? It's like, oh, it is a bad model. I've actually learned to appreciate that most AI models are sort of sitting in a bigger piece of software, right? There's human human interactions with the software. There's how humans interpret the outputs of these uh, outputs of these algorithms. There is uh, also just literally human error, right? Like humans can misuse just misuse the software because our directions weren't clear, right? And it is very easy to try to math your way out of a not math problem, if that makes any sense, right? That it's like as an academic, we like to think that everybody understands AI and really the only problems out there are just better math and better math is going to lead to better AI. And I think I, the, one of the biggest lessons I've learned with Echomark is that uh, that's actually not true. That operational problems, like operational problems and just the software sitting around the AI model can sometimes look like math problems or they can look like problems that you have to technically solve when in reality, better documentation, better user education, better, uh, better, uh, scaffolding around what the outputs look like are going to make it more valuable. And I, and this is one of the huge lessons that I'm taking away, right? That I think that, uh, you, you know, like the advent of AI changes the way that we do software engineering. We have to think about these systems holistically. We have to also think about these systems in a way that there is a fallible component sitting in the middle of your system, right? And how do we educate users on the potentials of that? Yeah, no, that's that, that's a great point. You're right, because like everyone is moving so fast, uh, technology, AI. And so do you think the awareness regarding AI's role in cybersecurity is keeping pace with the evolving threat landscape? Look, I, I think that uh, cybersecurity, I think that enterprise cybersecurity has always been a data-driven field, right? Even before the advent of AI, right? If we look at intrusion detection software, if we look at firewalls, if we look at effectively the business that Barracuda does, right? It's it's fundamentally a data business, right? That it's like looking at data and trying to understand patterns and trends in data. So I, I think that cybersecurity, network security is a field ripe for AI, right? Uh, now, I think that the hardest part here is that AI models are don't look at data in the same way that a human looks at data. And this is something that I always tell my students is that AI models today are fundamentally based on correlations, right? They are just automatons that maximize predictive accuracy. So it finds a way to maximize its predictive accuracy of an attack versus not an attack, or it tries to maximize its predictive accuracy of this is the leaker and this is not the leaker, right? It, it is not a causal model for the world. It is not reasoning about context. It is not reasoning, is Johnny likely to be the leaker? Johnny was kind of a new employee. It's not reasoning about any of that. It is just looking at the data that it has in front of you and tries to find what signals are most correlated with the correct prediction. Right now, the classical example that we give is that if you took pictures of cows and you took pictures of cars, uh, an AI model might learn that grass means cow, and it would not learn to predict that it predict a car correctly if that car was on grass, right? Because that is a sim the green color green might actually be the simplest signal to exploit, right? The same thing is going to happen with these AI tools, right? In cybersecurity, right? You might learn very brittle correlations just because they were present in your training data, right? Like all attacks happened at, uh, at midnight or something like that, right? And I think that that is the most interesting challenge that we have to face when we bring AI into these types of mission critical domains, right? We have to figure out what these models are learning. So that means we need to 
build trust to the people who are actually going to use these models to make decisions. So we need to educate people on what models are doing. We need to find ways to verify what they're doing. And also, frankly, remediation strategies when they get things wrong. They're going to get things wrong and we need to build our business processes accordingly so it is not a critical failure when they do sometimes get things wrong, right? So a lot of what we have done in Echomark is I think that we've built some of the most state-of-the-art tools for error quantification in uh, these types of predictions, right? Uh, We spent a lot of, lot of time figuring out how do we assign probabilities of failures to things and how do we ground those probabilities of failures in real data, right? We've run something like um, 50,000 simulations so far of different types of leak scenarios and trying to figure out these probabilities that we're showing to a user, are these are those real? When we say that there's a one in a million chance of failure, one in a million chance of being wrong, is it actually one in a million chance of being wrong, right? And that's uh, that's been, I think, the most enlightening experience to me because that's something that we would never really have to do in uh, in kind of a chat GPT-like application, like OpenAI, if it's wrong, it's wrong, right? They kind of laugh about it, right? Yeah, it makes things up sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's for sure. So. 15 years ago, we talked about digital transformation. Today, we talk about AI transformation. In your opinion, what's the mindset of managers and decision makers in companies? How do they apprehend the, that wave of AI technology? Like, what do you think of it? Like my advice to everybody, right? Because there are so many different types of AI technologies, right? There's generative AI and there's generative AI that generates text like ChatGPT. There's generative AI that generates images like Stable Diffusion and MidJourney and all of that. And then there's like, uh, then there's good old AI that does predictive, uh, predictive problems like we've been talking about in cybersecurity, right? I think that the simplest way to think about it is really think about the data flows in your company. Think about where could you instrument a process that you could collect valuable training data for an AI. That is how I like to think about the world now, right? That really the democratization of AI is a democratization of AI tooling, meaning that anyone today, right? We teach undergraduates in a weekend to train a machine learning model, right? It's just a matter of getting the right data and setting up your problem in the right way. What is a predictive problem that your company would like to solve? Or what is a problem that you would, a process that you would like to automate? Or what is a process you would like to optimize? Or what is a piece of text, piece of image, content that you would like to generate, right? How do you instrument your company in a way that you can collect that digital firehose that turns into the training data set that creates a immense business value for your company, right? And that's that's hard, right? Because sometimes those streams are going to be subtle, right? Does that mean, uh, like, if you're interested in building a customer service AI, does that mean uh, instrumenting your ticketing system and pulling out easy questions, right? Does that uh, does that mean you're tracking, like, if you're, a, if you're a warehouse company, putting sensors on all of your trucks to figure out when they're going and how they're going, right? Uh, like, these are, this is, I think, really the change of mindset that everybody needs to have, right? When we talk about the first digital transformation, it was digitizing your business data. I think that when you really look at AI transformation, it's digitizing your operational data, right? There's so much operational data in these companies, right? Whether it's messages going between employees, whether it's wikis, whether it is like the production of different internal content, all of that. Now, I think you should really think about how do we instrument that data to build AI tools that can eventually help us or help automate sub-processes. Sure, yeah. And the more data we have, the more complicated it could be to keep them safe. And uh, 
And so what are the most like common misconceptions companies might have about AI's capability in managing cybersecurity issues? I think that there are there are two sort of problems here, right? There is first AI's capability in managing cybersecurity issues, and then the flip, the cybersecurity issues of the presence of AI just causes, right? So I think that there's two questions, and I'll answer both of them. The, uh, the, the first one is, what is AI's role in cybersecurity, uh, and what are its capabilities? I think that the first biggest piece is that no AI algorithm is 100% accurate. That's just like, it should just be set out there, right? That if you want a 100% accurate solution, you need to have a cryptographic solution, right? You need to have something that is something that has provable guarantees. AI, AI tools are never going to be 100% accurate. So you need to design a business process around a tool not being 100% accurate. Whether that is human review, whether that is uh, whether that is like we've talked about uncertainty quantification and echo mark, uh, you need to build effectively a process around these models, knowing that they're not going to be right 100% of the time. That's the first, I think, biggest misconception that people have. It's like, you just assume that AI is gonna be a drop-in replacement for whatever software you're currently using. It's not a rule-based system. These are statistical systems. They exploit correlations. They're correct on average, right? And being correct on average doesn't mean it's useless, right? But it means that you need to account for the facts, that account for situations that are not average, right? And you need to account for what happens in those situations when it's wrong and and really think hard about what you do in those cases, right? That's kind of the first, uh, the first piece that I, I think that uh, I'd like to convey. The other piece that I'd like to convey is that I think that AI actually exacerbates cybersecurity problems in very weird ways, right? First, the models themselves are trained based on data. So everybody knows data is both an asset and a liability, right? That it is an asset in the sense that you can train these great AI models, but you're potentially retaining very sensitive data to train the AI models, right? That's kind of the first thing, right? The models themselves might leak that data because they are not provably secure. Just because you've trained a model doesn't mean that the, its provenance went away, right? You can oftentimes reverse engineer a model to find out verbatim pieces uh, that were in the original data. You can even mess with ChatGPT, right? That you can give it different prompts and you can probably find verbatim snippets from web websites on the internet, right? So it does leak that data. The other interesting thing is that the world of generative AI has just made this a lot more complicated, right? The prompts that you put into these generative AI tools are also potentially sensitive, right? Like, for example, today's um, today's OpenAI Terms of Service, if you're using the free version, you're using the version that you and me are using on our phone and you don't have a corporate license, they can see your prompts, right? So you're putting in a sensitive email to your boss and saying, hey, uh, uh, ChatGPT, can you make this a little bit more positive, right? Like that's a, that's, that's a major information leak for a company, right? So I think that another interesting aspect of a future of Echomark is I think that the world of AI has just made cybersecurity a lot more complicated. You're going to have these hosted services on the internet where people are using, people use ChatGPT to write emails today, right? But the information flows in and out of your company have just gotten a hell of a lot more complicated just because of the presence of these tools. Okay, interesting. So do you think the... Uh... We're going to have some stronger data privacy policy in the future because of AI? It's, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. And I actually don't know how this is going to shake out in terms of regulation. But I think that in the short term, what you're actually going to see is that data privacy policy is going to be a matter of market differentiation, that different companies are going to offer stronger or weaker guarantees to corner off different parts of the market, right? You're going to see some companies that effectively have a lights out version where they're just giving you uh, giving you the model and saying, you keep it in the walls of your own company. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't care, right? There are going to be other people 
companies that say that, hey, it's going to be sitting on our servers and we get to see everything. It does some great stuff. So you just take it or leave it, right? So I think that I think that for right now, I think that the degree of privacy is actually going to be a knob that marketing managers are going to play uh, play with to, uh, to, 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 to sell their products. Uh, I think that long term, this is something that we all have to have to deal with, right? Uh, because there are so many, so many hard questions here, right? That there is first, there's a question about ownership of data, right? That it's like, if, if you're using a model uh, that was trained on data that I own and you didn't have the rights to, that's the first question that we have to sort out. The second question is the ownership of generated content, right? That like, uh, like let's say that uh, Johnny from sales uh, wrote an email with ChatGPT and it said something weird to a customer, right? Uh, how do we figure that out? How do we, who do we blame? Uh, who's at fault here? How do we how do we sort of build uh, how do we build processes around that? Right. I think that I don't think that regulation is going to happen anytime soon. I think that the most important thing that we can do right now is training. Uh, make sure that people understand the capabilities of these tools, understand the scope of these tools, what they do and what they don't do, and can fully understand this. They are not hundred percent accurate. ChatGPT is not a search engine, right? And uh, the same way that any predictive model is not a rule-based system. Just because you might impute some rules into it doesn't mean it's a yes or no question. Uh, is this fraud or is this not fraud? There are statistical algorithms, right? That sometimes get things right and sometimes get things wrong. And that's something that is really important to internalize when you're thinking about AI. It's the fallibility. And I think that that's my biggest takeaway is training employees about fall potential fallibility and why it's fallible. But also not being so negative that you should never use this because just because something is wrong sometimes doesn't mean it's not useful. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, super interesting. Um, so as you know, at the end of each episode, the guest of the day must answer a question posed by the previous guest. Are you ready? Yeah, absolutely. So here's the question that comes from Lee Chesley, who is Chief Strategy and Transformation Officer at Longbow Advantage, which is a consulting IT company specialized in the world of supply chain. We can listen to it right now. So my question for the next guest is, what is the biggest assumption that they see about AI, either in their industry or in general, that they believe could lead to massive risk? Because we all know assumptions are not, most of the time, not good. Um, so where do they see where people are making these broad-based assumptions about how AI will be applicable? And where do we think that could become a big pitfall? All right. So... Sanjay, what is your answer to that question? <laughs> I, I think that the biggest assumption that I see that leads to risk is that uh, I, I think it's very easy to look at ChatGPT and look at the the sort of the pinnacle of AI research and assume that every problem that you deem as simpler is completely solved, right? That, uh, well, if we can do ChatGPT, we can clearly do fraud detection, or we can do ChatGPT, we can clearly do uh, disease prediction, in a, in a, or we can read uh, we can read x-ray images, right? Uh, it's sort of like a landing on the moon fallacy, right? That, well, if we can land a man on the moon, we can, uh, we can, uh, we can fix world hunger, right? Many AI problems are fundamentally different. Just because one problem looks harder than another problem doesn't mean that you're going to get a model that is uh, more accurate or more reliable just because we can solve a harder problem, right? So I think that one of the biggest things that I see where the biggest failure mode I see is kind of the belittling of the simple AI problems or the small scale AI problems, problems that are not at the scale of ChatGPT training on the entire internet, problems that are narrow and business focused to your industry 
Well, of course, we must be able to solve them. I think that those are the problems that are the most subtle because the failure, the, the risk of failure is very high often, right? That it's like you build a credit scoring application or you build something that looks at x-ray images and predicts whether somebody has lung cancer or not lung cancer, right? Those are mission critical applications. Yes, they are at a smaller scale than ChatGPT, but they almost require more scrutiny because of their smaller scale, right? And uh, I think that those are, I think that that's where I find the, the biggest risk that happens, right? It's people don't give respect to those small scale problems. And I think it's something that I have learned at Echomark is that, uh, you know, when you want to build a tool that is very, very accurate and very, very precise, it requires a lot of testing, a lot of infrastructure, as well as a lot of just instrumentation to see that you're doing the right thing, even six months, one year, five years down the road. Cool, perfect. Well, thank you for that. I'll make sure we get the answer. And so now, Sanjay, what's your question for the next guest? My question for the next guest is, what excites you the most about artificial intelligence, right? Uh, I would like to hear from your perspective, what do you think the biggest breakthrough uh, has been in the last six months? And what 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 just, what what excites you? What are, what are you interested in? What do you like playing around with? Cool, perfect. I'll make sure I'll pass along to the next guest. Uh, thanks again, Sanjay, for your time. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks for coming. Of course, good. And that wraps up another episode of AI Experience. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Thanks, bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast platform. Your support counts and your comments can really help share this experience with others. You can also visit the website ai-experience.io to find out more. See you soon for a new episode.